right, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12, and while you're turning there, uh, just wanted to let you know that if you weren't here Friday, um, this was really um, transformed into kind of like the North Pole, um, with, with Santa's workshop was here, and um, Sherry did a great job coordinating all of our all of our volunteers to work for Santa's workshop, and then I know that um, we, we had a chance to work alongside the Chamber of Commerce, and so to serve alongside them was a great opportunity for our community. If you, if you didn't get a chance to come, make plans next year, that, that Friday, um, that we do Santa's workshop and the parade and all that. It's, it's a pretty spectacular time here, um, and, and so everyone that participated in that, thank you for, for doing that. So um, let me summarize where we've been in the book of Daniel. We've been working through the entire book. Um, this is our 10th week in Daniel. And we've been talking about what it means to be Christ-centered in a culture that is increasingly growing in hostility towards things of God. And so we, we, we talked about how it is possible to live for Christ in this, in this type of culture. And it's possible to thrive in a culture that's hostile towards things of God. And so we talked about the first week, we talked about having a Christ-centered identity in the midst of this culture. We talked about having a Christ-centered attitude. We talked about having a Christ-centered testimony. We talked about how we can have Christ-centered hope. That we don't have to just circle the wagons. We don't have to live in fear as the culture grows in this hostility towards things of God. We talked about um, Christ-centered judgment and grace. About how, how Christ brings grace to his to people. You know, that even though we're separated from God and even though we're, we're born into sin, we're born for a need for God... Um, that he that that we deserve judgment, but he comes and he gives us grace. We talked about what that looks like um, for Christ-centered grace. We talked about what it looked like being Christ-centered in opposition. We talked about what it means to be Christ-centered as you suffer while looking to the future for victory. We talked about what Christ-centered prayer looks like, and we talked about what Christ-centeredness looks like in the spiritual realm. You guys, remember remember all that? Um, we talked we talked about all that, um, and then we also talked about how. Um, that our culture is, is Babylon, right? And I've been hinting towards this, and, and we've been talking about how the culture, everything around us, everything that grows in hostility towards God, that we live in a Babylonian culture, that that we that that America is not Israel, like that you read about in the Old Testament, that 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 Israel is the believers, Israel is the followers of Christ, um, that our culture, that the American culture, is in fact um, Babylon. And we get to the end of the book, we get to chapter twelve, and it's almost like, well, here, here's where the rubber meets the road. And so what we're talking about this morning is we're talking about Christ-centered readiness. Like we see the whole book. We've, we've gone through the whole book. Now let's get out and, and do this. Okay? Um, before we get to chapter 12, let me just summarize some things in chapter 11. Um, chapter 11, it, maybe be, it might be better to read that kind of like as a history lesson. Okay, but but chapter 11 for Daniel was future events, right? It's prophecy like like as Daniel writes chapter 11, he's looking to the future and we're going to be able to see things that went on in the past. Okay, so Daniel chapter 11, let me just summarize some things in the first two verses. It starts with Darius, Darius, who's the king of Persia, and it mentions three other kings that followed him. Um, and, and we can look back in history and we can see these kings. Um, then it mentions the fourth king that is um, much more powerful, much more wealthy than the other kings from Persia. And we can look back from history and see that this is Xerxes who invaded Greece. It talks about in, um, in these two verses how he would engrave beasts and invade Greece but be defeated. Okay? And that's what he did. Um, it happens just like Daniel predicted it would. That, that, um, that Persia invades Greece and then is defeated. And, and from verse 2 to verse 3, there's a 150-year lapse. Um, and, and, but 150 years later, um, it's described in verse 3 and 4 as a mighty king or a warrior king that rises up from Greece um, and, and, and with great power leads, um, in which we can see as being Alexander the Great as we look back um, on history. Verses 5 through 35, um, you have a prediction of a king of the north and a king of the south, and kind of this this um, tennis match, if you will, that goes back and forth of one rising to power and the other kingdom rising to power. And looking back on history, we see that Egypt is the south and Syria um, is the north with their many kings that come and, and go. In verse 20 through 35, it talks about a king from the north 
um, from Syria that's going to be much more magnificent. Like he's got a lot more swagger than the other kings and, and how he's smooth in his talking and he's very flattering in his speech. Um, and he comes and he's going to and he's going to do things that all the other kings weren't even able to do. Um, and it's a sort of this central figure. Um, it talks about um, this abomination um, of desolate that he's going to come in. And he's going to do some some bad things. Um, and, and we can look back on history and we can see that this is a, um, a Syrian king. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes is, is the man. And this abomination that it, that it talks about, he comes into the temple at Jerusalem and he slaughters a pig um, on, the th- on the altar of God, which was an abomination to, to um, Israel. Okay, And so we, we can look through verse 35 and we can see one kingdom after another, one king after another, that Daniel's predicting will happen, that happens exactly how he says. Okay? Like, like verse, verses 1 through 35, listen, it is with su- described with such extreme accuracy that many liberal scholars don't believe that Daniel wrote 11, um, chapter 11. Most, scholar, most liberal scholars believe that someone hundreds of years later after all these things took place, came in and recorded these in, in, in Daniel chapter 11. Because they say there's no way that anyone could have predicted with such accuracy the first 35 um, verses. But we know that not to be the case. We know the Word of God to be true. And we know that, that God, as He reveals things to His people, um, and they're written down as prophecy that they will come to, come to pass. Then you get to verse 36 through 45, and it takes on a little bit of a different tone than the rest of chapter 11. It doesn't have historical accuracy. Like all the things described in verses 36 through 45, um, are, aren't, it's not, there's not historical accuracy there. So liberal scholars just say, well, he just got sloppy. He finally made a mistake if he were predicting these things. But most scholars believe that verse 36 to 45 is pointing to some future event that has not taken place yet, um, namely the end times. Okay, so that's chapter 11. You can go home and you can, you can read it as a bedtime story and get caught up on that. Um, but, but listen, here, let, me, let, me, let me summarize chapter 11. God does nothing without first telling His people. Okay? Like, like if we have one thought on how we're going to get ready and, and, and what that hinges on. Listen, God does nothing without first telling His people. Now, like this is all a scripture. Like Genesis, the beginning, all the way to Revelation, the end. God over and over is saying, this is what I'm going to do. 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 Alright, like Noah, he comes to Noah and he says, I'm going to flood the earth, build an ark. Right? He comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to build a great nation out of you. Now go here. He comes to Moses and he says, I'm about to use you to lead my people out of Egypt. I'm going to do all these great miraculous things. And, the king, and Pharaoh's not going to do it at first, but he's going to at the end after I do all these great things. He comes to David as a boy and says, you're going to be the next king of Israel. He comes to the prophets, the minor prophets, the major prophets, and says, hey, if you don't repent, you're going into exile. You're going into exile. You're going into exile. Babylon's coming for you. And, and it happens. And while they're in Babylon, we're reading Daniel... Um, Ezekiel, um, Isaiah, a lot of these guys talk about this, that, that you will be sent back to Israel where you'll be a thriving nation again. We, and we, we studied that last year in Nehemiah, right? The book of Nehemiah where they go and they rebuild the temple. And it doesn't just stop. You know, the Old Testament over and over again talks about the Messiah, talks about the rescuer who would come. You know, we, we're celebrating His birth um, th- this month. That's what, that's what Christmas is about. We're celebrating that. Um, but the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, would say that He is coming. Would point to Him coming. And listen, God does nothing without first telling His people. And that continues in the New Testament when Jesus says, this is what, this is what the end is going to be like. And this is what they're going to do to you. And this is going to happen. And this is going to happen. And this is going to happen. And the letters, the, the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, that Peter writes, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Revelation, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. You see, all throughout Scripture, God does nothing without first telling His people. So the question is, what does God tell us in chapter 12? I'm glad you asked, because we're going we're gonna to see that. So if you found that, or it will be on the screen, if you'll stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. 
Daniel chapter 12. It says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Remember we talked about that some last week in chapter 10. There should be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the air shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall, sh shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the other bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of those wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall stand, shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from that time, the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. It's the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. So lots of people preach the book of Daniel, and it starts talking about a certain number of days and certain times. And, and, and one, one scholar who devotes their life to studying this stuff says it's like this. And another scholar that devotes his life to, um, to studying this, the, the, Daniel, the end times, will say, no, it's like this. And so listen, there, there's disagreement on scholars on, on what's going to happen, when it's going to take place, how it's going to take place. And that's not the point of the book. But, but I will say this about, about everything. The end is coming. Jesus is coming back, alright? So, so, so he's coming back, and so we're not going to get into all um, of days because uh, what, all the, what all this prophecy means, because we don't know, right? I mean, I'm not going to arrogantly say, it's going to be like this, when not even scholars who devote their lives can agree. But here's what we are going to focus on, that God does nothing without first telling His people. Okay? So, um, nearly three years ago, um, January 2015, the Lord started stirring in our hearts, um, and, and we, we had reason to believe some of the things that God was doing in our lives as we prayed and as we sought Him, and as we searched Scripture, there was, there was reason to believe that God was sending us away from Sentinel, like, like we were about to move Sentinel, um, where I was pastoring, and my wife and I both felt like that was going to happen and I'm like one of the I'm one of the planners, right? Like if I know something's got to happen, I know something's got to do it. Like I go out and, and try to make it happen, right? Like that's how my that's how my mind is geared. And, and I remember as we prayed about this for several months, April ro rolled around, and I was at the men's retreat at Falls Creek. And I remember praying about this and, and saying, God, what do I need to do? What's this going to look like? And and, and as I was worshiping the Lord, um, He said, he, I remember Him whispering in my spirit, "Get ready, you're about to leave." but you don't have to do anything to make it happen, okay? And listen, not a, it wasn't even a week later that, my, that Mike Arp called me, and he said, uh, hey, we're from SkyTube, we don't have a pastor, you're interested, more, more or less. All right? So, God does nothing without revealing to His people, without speaking to His people, does nothing without first telling His people. What, what is God telling us here? Like listen, some, sometimes God speaks in our hearts and it's with crystal clarity. And sometimes He speaks and it's vague. But listen, God does nothing without first telling His people. What is God telling us 
What's one final thought from Daniel? God does nothing without first telling His people. You, you get you getting there? That, that's the one thought. God does nothing without first telling His people. And by the way, that helps us to be ready. You know, Christ-centered readiness. It helps us to be ready knowing where God is taking us. Knowing what God is asking us to do. It helps us to be ready. He doesn't keep secrets from His people. He readies us. He prepares us. He, he reveals things to us that's consistent with His Word. He never speaks anything inconsistent with His Word. Okay, so, so if, if you come to me and you're like, uh, God told me I need to leave my wife today. It's not consistent with His Word. So like God does nothing without revealing things to His people. That's consistent with His Word. So, so what, what does He have for us today? What, what is the last thing... What do we need to be? How do we need to be ready? We've seen the whole book and what it means to be Christ-centered. What do we do? What do we do to be ready? What is he showing us? What is he showing us? He's going to do here. Number one, you guys ready? Number one. Number one. We have to prepare for persecution. We have to prepare for persecution. So in verse 1, look at what, what look what God tells Daniel. He says, At the time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. Listen to what he says. And there shall be a time of trouble, such, has, has, such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. You've got to prepare for persecution. But see, we live in a world where persecution is normal. Okay? Like persecution is normal. And, and the reason being is because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world and sin has fractured everything. Okay? Like your sin, my sin, um, the sins of the world, everything is fractured. So like people, people who are created to live forever get sick and die. Right? Like there's not just this, it's, it's not just wine but it's drunkenness and abuse and all, all this stuff. There, there's not just sex that exists between a husband and wife. But, but there's pornography and there's adultery and there's homosexuality. There's all these things that, that exist because our world is fallen. And because we live in a fallen world, sin has created this hostility towards God and a hostility towards other people. Like it's just part of the world we live in. Right? Like we, we complain, that's not fair. That's the world we live in. It's not fair. Because there's this hostility that exists between us and God and us and each other because the world we live in. Like persecution is normal. And like, like America, we, we have things wrong because here's what we, here's what we think. Here's what we say. Oh, the world's getting evil. And there's a day coming um, when we're going to have to pay for what we believe in, that we're not going to have the freedom to, to, to say, I love, I love God, and we're not going to have the freedom to do this, we're not going to do that. The world must be coming to an end. And, and, and like, like it's, a, it's an unbiblical view that as soon as things get bad here, it must be the end. Because according to Scripture, persecution is a sure thing that happens to followers of God. Like it's just, it's normal. Like to the rest of the world and to the Bible, Persecution is normal. In fact, it's promised for Christians. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, they persecuted me. You better believe that they're going to persecute you too. Nearly every letter of the New Testament, there's this, there's this warning, persecution is coming, persecution is happening, but be encouraged. And then it goes on to say why we should be encouraged. See, our nation, our nation has been an anomaly because of our founding. We've been, found, we've been founded on some biblical principles. Our, our nation's an anomaly because we've got this democracy where, where we have freedom of speech and we have certain freedoms um, that, that has allowed our nation to see very little persecution. Well, listen, that's fading. And it's fading fast. We're to be ready. We've got to prepare for persecution, how do we how do we do that? I got a couple ways. 
that we can prepare for persecution. Number one, we've got to be willing to examine our hearts. We've got to, we've got to examine our hearts to see, are we about our glory or are we about God's glory? Because if we're about our glory, we will grit our teeth and stomp our, our feet and make a scene and something happens. And we'll, and we'll fight to get to a place of comfort if we're about our glory. But if we're about God's glory, we see that He says these things will happen when we look for ways to exalt through it. Like we love our comfort, right? Like if you have a headache, what do you want? We, you, you pop some Tylenol just as quick as you can, right? Because you don't you want to you want to have that headache. You know, with lots of people fasted. I, I'm, I'm proud of us for fast. Like lots of people. But the reason we hate that, the reason it's not regular, is because we don't like the discomfort of going through it. Like we fight and we gravitate towards comfort. So as we look at our hearts in preparation for persecution, are we for our glory? Are we for His? Because if we're for ours, we will gravitate towards comfort. And that means when it comes time to speaking for Him or not, we won't. When it comes time to living for Him or not, we won't. When things get difficult, we'll scram if we're for our glory. And all we have to do is look at our lives, look at our hearts to see where we line up on that. Are we for His glory or are we for ours? So how do we prepare? We examine our hearts. But the second thing, we need to teach suffering from the start. We need to teach the cost from the start. Like the last hundred years, here's what, here's what we've done. We have watered God down to some divine Santa Claus that comes on into the scene, that gives us salvation, and then we don't see Him for a year, or ten years, or fifty. We just kind of do what we want. Oh, thank you, God, You saved me. Let me pray this prayer to get saved. And then I'll just kind of, I'll kind of live comfortably. And so I'll be a follower of Christ as long as I get heaven. And I'll be a follower of Christ as long as it doesn't, as long as it's not too much of a commitment for me. As long as I don't have to spend too much time spending His Word in His Word, as long as I don't have to give my tithes and offerings, as long as I don't have to be part of this class, as long as I don't have to serve in this capacity, as long as I don't have to do this, as long as I don't have to do that, as long as it's not too much work, I'll be a follower of Christ. But Jesus says it's not like that. Jesus said if you're going to come after me, count the cost. Because it'll cost you something. You see, if we're to follow Christ, if we're to prepare for suffering, We've got to teach that following Christ is not a prayer we pray in Bible school, but it is, it is a call for us to be all in. To be all in. You know, we teach... Uh, I, I'm trying my hand at coaching this year, basketball. And I was, I was kind of dreading it a little bit going in, but I've actually, I'm actually having a lot of fun on this. But one of the things I'm trying to teach the, the boys that I, that I coach is to be all in. To not take a break. To work for the rebound. To work for the steal. Um, to, to work for, to get open scoring. To, to give everything. Not just for yourself, but for your team. To be all in. And when they're all in, they, they do pretty well. That's when they take a break on defense. Or take a break when they don't have the ball. Or just watch the rebound when we don't do so well. We've done a poor job of teaching that if you're to be a follower of Christ, the demand is that you're all in. We've watered it down to ask Him in your heart, say you're sorry for your sins, and then show up occasionally at church. All in. If we're to prepare for persecution, we've got to be all in. Do you really think that your kids that are this tall when they're grown, do you really think when it gets tough that they're going to be all in if they've seen you model? Let's go to church as long as there's not something else better to do. 
long as we don't have a game, as long as the weather's not too nice outside, as long as we're not tired, we'll go to church. You think your kids are going to be all in when there's a cost? If that's how you raised them, your kids, your grandkids, is that what we think? They've watched you spend your money on you. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that. They've watched you not give your tithe to the Lord that He requires, not give offerings. Not, not do, if they see you withhold, do you think when it gets difficult down the road, they're going to suddenly want to be all in? See, what we model today is how we prepare. Everything has to be Christ-centered. Everything modeled in the home. With your kids, with your grandkids, in your marriage, everything's got to be Christ-centered. Because when the day the government says you can no longer talk about Him, you can no longer meet together, you can't do this, you can't do that, you know what's going to happen to, to the bulk? Scram. Because we haven't, we haven't brought our kids up. All in. All in. So Daniel comes along. And by the way, God does nothing without telling His people and He says there's going to be persecution. He tells us that so we can be prepared. Number one, prepare for persecution. Number two, point others to Jesus. Point others to Jesus. How do we be ready? How is there this, this Christ-centered readiness? What, what, how do we be ready? We point others to Jesus. Look at verse 2. It says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What's he talking about? He's talking about, he's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about the day that Christ is going to return and He's going to judge us for, for what we did with Jesus. Like we're like everyone you know, everyone who's lived, everyone who who has gone, who has died, everyone who will will be born. Like we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment seat of God. Did you know that that Romans three twenty three says that all of us have sinned, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what that means? That there's there's not a one of us that deserves heaven and forgiveness. There's no one of us that deserves that. And according to, to um, Romans chapter 3, no amount of goodness that we do can outweigh any sin that we've ever done. Like it's like you're one and done when you sin. Like that's what the scripture describes us. That you and I are born in a condition that we need God. But that there's not a one of us that escapes this life without a need to be forgiven and restored to God through Jesus. And so what, what, um, what Daniel's saying here is he's speaking of the resurrection. He's speaking of the grace and the judgment of God. Grace that we get heaven. That we get everlasting life even though we don't deserve it. He's speaking of grace and he's speaking of judgment. Now we haven't always done such a great job with this. Like, because like the last, probably the last 50 years, um, here, the church has treated the outside world as pointing the finger. Right? Like if, if, if we in here see something being done wrong out here, we're like, sinners! And, and here's how, like over the last 50 years, maybe 100, but for a long time, it's been, well, if you're to come in here where I am, then you've got to act this way, you've got to talk this way, you've got to dress this way, and if you're not willing to do that, Judgment to you. You're going to hell. Like that's how, that's strong, but that's the message that we've sent. A message of judgment. Now we've kind of, we've kind of, we've kind of turned the corner on that because now the, the, the church culture speaks nothing of sin to the outside world. It's just like, oh, accept them. Let's, do, let's just love them. Let's just love them. It's like, it's like there's this, there's no, you need to turn to Jesus, repent, um, turn from your sins, um, confess. None of that. It's just, hey, let's just love everybody. Let's just coexist. Let's just, let's just one big happy family. Don't matter what you believe, what you do. Let's just love everyone. Can I tell you that what Scripture describes is something in between where we speak 
of our sin and our need for Jesus while at the same time extending grace in His, in His love. Like That's the model in Scripture. Not just judgment. But also not, not talking about judgment. The model in Scripture is to speak of our sin and what Christ did for us to restore us back to God. That His love, His sacrifice, a life committed to Him brings about life. Brings about restoration. So we speak of it. That's what's, that's what's happening here. Um, there's a spoken word that there's going to be a judgment. That there's life for some. Shame and everlasting contempt for others. He speaks of it. But also, we point, we, we point people to Jesus not just by what we speak, but also by the way we live. Look at verse 3. It says, And those who are wise. Now there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Like knowledge, lots of people have knowledge and don't have wisdom. Right? Like wisdom is being able to take what you know and to live that out. Okay, so verse 3, um, he's going to say that those who are wise, what do they do? They shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In other words, that the wise, that those who know and follow God, that, that, there, that there should be this, this recognition that when you look at them, you notice that. Like that's what Jesus talks about when He's the Sermon on the Mount, when He's talking about you know, a, a city on a hill is not hidden, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl, but it shines bright for the world to be attracted to. And, and by the way, when that happens, they see Jesus and, and they... They, they give glory to Him. That's what Jesus says when, he, when He's speaking in these times. He's just echoing what's, what's written right here in, in Daniel. That it's not just our speech, but the way we live our lives, we point people to Jesus. You know, Jesus, God does nothing without first telling His people. Here He's telling us in all Scripture, He tells us that with the words that we use and the way we live our lives, to speak the gospel, and people will people will be saved. Like Matthew twenty eight, the Great Commission. Jesus says to go and make disciples of all nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that's commanded. Then what does he say? I'm with you till the end of time. What is he saying? If you'll, if you'll go and you'll, and you'll make disciples, and you'll do this, and you'll teach me, you'll, you'll do this. I'm going to save. I'm with you. Like that's, God does nothing without telling His people. What is he? he gives us the Gospel and says if we proclaim it, people will be saved. If we point people to Jesus, people will be saved. So they'll be changed. In our mission statement, we didn't forget it earlier. I wanted to save it till now because I want us to be reminded of this. I want us to say this together. If you're a guest, we do this every week because we, we want to remind ourselves what we're about. So say this with me. Sky Two first exists to connect people to Jesus, His truth, His family, and His mission. And what's the primary strategy that we have in doing that? Small groups. Small groups. If you're new here, you're like, ooh, this is kind of cultish. They're chanting stuff at me. No. All we're doing is we're taking what Jesus said that we are to be about. And Him doing nothing. Him saying, if you're about this, if you're about doing this, I'm going to connect people to myself through you. So we prioritize His Word. Because you don't want my opinion, and I don't necessarily want your opinion, because sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. We want the Word. We want to be connected to His family. We want more people to be brought in to be adopted into his family. The, the Moomies talked about Asher, talked about him being adopted into their family. Do you notice what God does to us whenever we're born with a need for him and then whenever he calls us and we respond, we're adopted into his family because, because of what he's done in his truth, in his, in his mission. You know, again, that he does nothing without telling his people. He tells us that if we're about his mission, people will be brought in, people will be saved, people will be set free. There will be joy given to them. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Like in 
In John 17, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will be given to his followers. What, what is he doing? He's doing nothing without telling his people what's going to happen. In, in Acts 1, he's, he tells them what's going to happen. And you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He does nothing without telling his people first. He's gathering every tribe, every tongue, every family. He's ordained the gospel to go out from our lips and our lives as the method. What he's telling us. He does nothing without first telling his people. What he's telling us is if the gospel goes out from our lips and our lives, people will be changed. They'll be saved. Be ready. We've got to prepare for persecution, number one. Number two, we've got to point others to Jesus. And number three, if we're to be, if we're to be ready, if we're to move out from here in Christ-centered in a Babylonian culture, if we're to be ready, number three, then we must be comforted by God's provision. We gotta be, we gotta be. Otherwise, we're gonna lose heart. Otherwise, we're gonna get sidetracked, distracted. We're gonna lose heart. But if we're to be ready, then we've got to be comforted by God's provision. Look at verse one. The time Michael shall rise. Or at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charged of your people. Here's the disheartening thing. There shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation until that time. Listen. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Speaks of trouble. He does nothing without first warning his people, without telling his people. But he speaks of provision as well, aren't you glad? Think about all the things that Daniel has seen. Chapter 1, everybody's getting meat and wine, stuff that makes them strong. Daniel doesn't want to eat the stuff that sacrifice, drink the stuff that sacrificed to idols. So he asked, give me, give me a few vegetables and water. And the guy's like, you think that's going to make you strong? Yeah, listen, we'll do it. I'll, I'll try it for a week, and then, then i got to get you caught up with all these other guys. And he gives them that. And Daniel and his buddies are stronger than any of the other guys. Why? Because God provides. In chapter 2, God provides by giving Daniel a vision that he was threatened with death if he did not, or, or, or he, he, was, he was given a dream by Nebuchadnezzar that if he did not translate it, he would be put to death. And God provided the answer. In chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. And God provided. Daniel saw Daniel to see these things. In chapter 4, this arrogant, prideful, hostile king is brought low because of what God does. And Daniel see God, sees God provide. In chapter 5, Babylon, the Babylonians, the enemy, God pronounces judgment through handwriting on the wall. And, God's, and, and, and Daniel gets to see the provision of God delivering him from his enemy. In chapter 6, Daniel is thrown in the lion's den. And, he get, and, and Daniel gets to see God's provision as God shuts the mouth of the lion. In chapter 7 and 8, he's given these terrifying visions that God provides the answer to. In chapter 9, um, God reveals to him his need for repentance, and he repents. And Daniel's heart is filled with joy at the provision of the Lord's forgiveness. In chapter 10, Daniel gets to see the the, the spiritual realm, things going on in the spiritual realm that's, that's unseen. And God provides all of this for me too. In chapter 11, a prophecy that God, the provision of the Lord, reveals. In chapter 12, there's this discouragement, but then there's this encouragement at the Lord's provision. Listen, at what point in the book of Daniel, at what point does God not provide? Listen, you don't come out of the fiery furnace untouched without first trusting God enough to go into the furnace and see God provide. You don't have a story to tell about the lion's den without first trusting God enough to go into the lion's den and God provide. When does God not provide? When God called us here, the only apprehension I had was that I didn't know anyone at this... All my family's at the other end of the state, the other corner. 
We got all these kids. Who's gonna Who's gonna watch our Who's gonna help us with our kids? Who are we gonna trust with our kids? My my, my apprehension was family. Don't have any. God does nothing without first revealing to His people. He led me to the passage that says, "Anyone who leaves their father or mother or their home or, or this or that will be repaid a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come." And God has given us family here, so very close that love us and our kids like their very own. God has given me brothers here that love me close as a brother. Like he, he gives us, He provides what we, what we need. Everything we need, he, he provides. We can be comforted by that provision. My little girl had no hope. And we were told, take her home and love her. There's nothing we can do. God provided a surgeon that completely healed her lungs and her heart. Provision of the Lord. We can be comforted by His provision. He delivers. He just does. He's a God who delivers. Look at Psalm chapter um, 91. This is, this is a psalm that as a family we we're, have chosen to memorize um, in preparation for persecution. Listen to this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand but it will not come near you. You only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And then from God, listen, because he holds fast to me in love, I'll deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Whether that be gathered around my table or in prison Somewhere for my faith. God's word to me and to you. Be comforted by that. What about Psalm 40? Um, what about this? Psalm 40, verse, verse 1. We sang about this a minute ago. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He puts a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and they will put their trust in the Lord. What about Psalm 23? What about that one? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the provision of the Lord. He is a God that always comes through. When we moved up here, one other worry. Randy's dad was dying of leukemia. We didn't know it at the time. We, we, didn't know, we knew he had leukemia. We didn't know what the doctor would be. We knew it was a possibility. We got to spend some precious time with him at the end. We were worried about being way up here when he was way down there. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed for healing. 
And this last, last November has been two months since he's been dead. But I'll tell you, he's never been more alive than he is right now. And God brings healing, even then. He prepares his people for the future, and it's for his glory and their good. Look at verse 13. But go your way. Listen, after all this, after all, after all he sees, and he's still in Babylon, he's still in a hostile culture, what is, God, what is the last thing God says to him? Go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Look at the blessing in this hostile culture and future uncertainty. Rest in the ability to stand. Such is the promise for Christ, those who are Christ-centered. That's Christ-centered readiness. Prepare for persecution. Point others to Jesus. Be comforted by His provision. Listen, we don't have to, we don't have to be afraid in Babylon. We don't have to be angry in Babylon. We just have to stay Christ-centered in Babylon. Christ-centered in all things. Listen, the purpose of the book of Daniel. Listen, we, we got some great instructions on how, to, on how to stand in Babylon, how to live in, in Babylon. But listen, the purpose of Daniel is not to give an instruction manual, but to see that Christ is committed to His people and to see the great lengths He goes to accomplish His purpose his purpose and the purpose of His people. That is Christ-centeredness. Jesus is the answer to all things. When we're Christ-centered in all things, He begins to reveal to us what He's about to do. He does nothing without first telling His people. And when He does, it's for His glory and for our good. And I talk to some people who are afraid in Babylon. They're not happy being in Babylon. It's almost as Let's just circle the wagons and hope we survive. There's this anger. There's, I talked to some Christians who are angry because the world's doing this and they're forcing this on us. And it's not fair that this, that this person gets to say this and do this, but we don't, as Christians, we don't get to. In this religion, they get to say this, but we get persecuted if we, or we get, we get um, um, a slap on the wrist for saying this. See, some people aren't happy living in Babylon. But listen, there's a joy that runs deeper than Babylon. Augustine was born in, in A.D. Um, 354. And he died in, the, in A.D. 430. He was a man that started with a rough start. Very immoral start that gave his life to the Lord. And God did great things to him. He lived in a Babylonian culture Moral decay was all around. Sin, like you wouldn't believe, was all around. And, and, and the vandals began to, to come in and to take over the nation. In the city, they get, they get to the city where he lives. And man, these are, these are barbarians. These are ruthless men that have surrounded the city and they're about to overtake the city. Here's one of the, here's one of the things that Augustine wrote a, a little before his death, a little before the barbarian takeover. Here's what he wrote. How sweet all it was, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I once feared I would lose. Now, now what were those fruitless joys? He doesn't say, what was his fruitless joy? Was it freedom? Maybe that was a joy. As long as I have my freedom, I'll be happy. Maybe his fruitless joy. Maybe it was wealth. As long as I have this much money, I'll be happy. Or maybe it was his health. As long as I'm healthy, um, I'll be happy. You know, maybe for Augustine, it's life. As long as I'm alive, I'll be happy. Well, what is the joy? What, is, what, is your, what, would, what would you say for you? Here's what Augustine says. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I'd once feared to lose. And then talking, talking to God, you drove them from me. You who are the Troy, the, the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. O oh Lord, 
my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation. Listen, as barbarians are surrounding to take over, there's no crying for him. There's no, there's no whining. There's no fear. What's going to happen to me? What, what, what's going to happen? There's none of that. There's just this joy and this satisfaction in Christ. Listen, you can't get that anywhere. It wasn't on the... You didn't miss out on it when you didn't get out for Black Friday. Listen, you can't buy joy. You can't find it on a shelf somewhere. Joy only comes in Christ. And that's what Augustine felt. Surrounded by barbarians in a sinful culture. No crying. Just joy. Such joy is ours. Don't you leave here without it. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. God, thank You that we don't have to be afraid about anything that comes our way. Thank You that Christ-centeredness, that a joy comes there, and a peace comes there, and a certainty is there that's bigger than any circumstance we face. God, maybe there's a man, woman, boy, or girl who's been looking for joy or satisfaction in this, or that, or trying this, or trying that. They just haven't found anything that lasts long. God, I pray that you call them today. That they respond to the life of repentance and following you. And that you'll fill their heart with joy. Joy that's unspeakable. Thank you that we don't have to be afraid. Thank you that we can be Christ-centered in a culture that grows in hostility towards you. God, help us to be bold. Help our allegiance to you to be stronger and more bold than it ever has. We love you and praise you and honor you. We ask things in Jesus' name. Amen.